This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Millat. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 1. This season highlights the stories of immigrants and refugees from all around the world, as well as some organizations that work with and for these beautiful people. I'm excited to welcome our guest today, Lisa Taylor, the Executive Director at the Immigrant and Refugee Center of Northern Colorado, located in the Greeley-Evans area. The IRC is a community school where many refugees and immigrants can come and learn English as well as take citizenship classes, morning and evening. They also offer free community navigation services to guests who might need a little extra help with interpretation and translation services. I was lucky enough to work for the IRC over the last three school years. I've witnessed firsthand the impact this school is making on the many residents of the community as well as the impact the students of the school were making on me. Lisa, thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm so happy to have this conversation. Before we get started, and it gets a little heavy, let's start off with something fun. Who is your favorite superhero and why? My fiance is really into superheroes, and so I have taken a deep dive into all things Marvel and DC and superheroes, and I have landed on Spider-Man. And I think it's because he's like your friendly neighborhood superhero. Like he's local and yeah, he does like big major things, but he's not, he doesn't strike me as one of the most flashy superheroes. And he, we get to see a part of his life where he builds relationships like his friends at school and he's awkward with girls. And I love the, the flaws in him because that's the part that's like, like, I think Wonder Woman is amazing. Like, wouldn't it be awesome to be that powerful and gorgeous and like, but she's so perfect that it's, it's unattainable. And I need a superhero that I'm like, oh yeah, I'm also goofy that way. That is a beautiful answer. I love the relatability that you say you have to Spider-Man. That's all we all want to do. We all want to think that we can be like a superhero, right? And I think that the work you do in the community is like a superhero. So I would like to hear about how you transitioned into the role of executive director at the Immigrant and Refugee Center of Northern Colorado. If you could kind of talk me through your education and the jobs that ultimately led you to this position that you now hold. Never in a million years did I think I would end up as an executive director of a nonprofit. I'm not sure that's in anyone's career path, honestly, uh, from the get-go, but When I was really young, uh, I wanted to be a teacher and I never really deviated from that. My love of learning and my outgoing nature, you know, culminated to think, yeah, this would be a great profession for me to pursue. And I did. I went to college and got an undergraduate degree in um, political science and certified to teach social studies and got my coaching endorsement and then became a high school teacher and a coach. And I loved it. So for my master's degree, I pursued English literature, thought then I'll be able to teach English and history. And the the goal was always to return back to the secondary settings, specifically to high school students. But when I was in graduate school, a friend of mine was working at an adult education center called Right to Read. And she said, hey, 
we need somebody to teach a night class two times a week to English language learners. And I said, I've never done that before. I don't think I'm in any way qualified. I don't speak any other languages. And, and I'm just, yeah, I'm not, I'm not your girl. And she said, well, to be honest, we're kind of desperate. So the fact that you have a teaching license, why don't you just give it a chance? And not unlike a lot of people who find themselves working in nonprofits or with English language learners, I stumbled into it um, awkwardly and <laughs> without much skill at all. I had an ESL4 class that met two nights a week, and they were all adults, which was such a contrast from my teaching experience. But I loved it. It was the, you know, the best part of my week. And even if I was exhausted after my own studies, I was really genuinely excited to go to class. And I built relationships with those students. And I came to love them as my friends. And I was invested in their life. And I saw how delivering instruction to an English language learner was such a game changer. Because as compared to being a high school teacher where you know, we're playing the long game of education. This was like immediately applicable uh, to their lives and was resulting in them being able to better advocate for themselves and for their families. And that was life-changing for me. So I thought, you know, if I ever get the chance to make this a job, I will. But I didn't have the chance then. So I finished grad school. I went on to teach at the collegiate level. And I loved that. Uh, and I worked in a writing center while I was teaching at the collegiate level, and, and I just felt so glad, like, gosh, every part of my vocational journey has been uniquely fulfilling in its own way. But in the back of my mind and in the bottom of my heart, I still had this nagging to get back to working with uh, a diverse community. I, I got that opportunity. I actually had moved back and forth between Colorado and Arkansas and my, my joint residency, and I moved in the middle of a school year, so there weren't any high school or college jobs open, but there was a position open back at Right to Read. I applied and I picked up a few ESL classes and I did that for about a year and a half. And then my predecessor was leaving for another job. So I became interim director, during which time I really thought I'm just going to put into place all the things I was thinking. If I was the boss, I would do this and that. So I thought, I'll just put these changes in and then I'll go back to teaching and the board will hire a new executive director and that person will think this is how we've always done things. And then I will have gotten to, you know, create change, yeah. but not, not, not forfeit being in the classroom. But during that time as interim director, I got to have the best of both worlds. I got to build relationships with our students, but I also got to help teachers grow in their own professional development. So I liked the big picture part of being the director. So then I officially applied and that was seven years ago, seven years and two months. So I'm, I'm holding out for 10. Congratulations. I remember you saying once that not a lot of executive directors of nonprofits make it past a five-year mark. Like that's a mark, a yes. demarcation because the job is so difficult. They either yes. are for five years or for a lifetime, right? It's true. Lots of turnover or they're lifers. <laughs> yes. So it sounds like you weren't necessarily compelled to work with or for marginalized groups. You kind of fell into that and you were so rewarded by the relationships you had that 
it inspired you to stay with this grouping of people, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. When I was teaching, I found teaching high school and college, I found myself gravitating toward those students who were hardest to reach, you know, the ones who were struggling behaviorally or had significant barriers. So I knew there was something in me that just kind of loves the underdog. Uh, You know, anyone who was sort of on the margins was like, that's who I want to love on and support and, and work with. But then being introduced to people who have refugee and immigrant status, that was a game changer. It really was like, wow, this this is really something I want to pursue. And I must say that from a selfish perspective, I thought I've loved every job I've had, but working with this group of people is by far the most fulfilling. So true. Well, speaking as your role of the executive director and because you're not in the classroom as often as you want to be anymore, you have the harder job of reaching out to the community, soliciting funds, explaining what you do. How has the community received you in Evans and Greeley and uh, pretty much the larger Northern Colorado area because you're the, one of the only schools in this area for English language learners. So how have they positively responded to you and maybe what are some of the negative responses you've received? One of the things I love most about this job is the relationships that I've been able to build with partner organizations, with, with donors, with other, you know, with other community entities. Like I've had the chance to meet other folks doing humanitarian work and deepening those relationships. And those have been richly rewarding. And I have grown so much as a person and a professional as a result of those relationships. And I would say I've had opportunities at the state level, you know, to participate in state level conversations and sometimes even national conversations and the the networking and relationship building and camaraderie uh, that those opportunities afforded me has been rich to say the least. And I would say what's interesting about Northern Colorado is it's very difficult to describe our political landscape here. Um, You know, we have the presence of the university and community as it relates to culture and and communities of color. And we also have a really conservative, politically driven agenda across county leadership and political landscape. And because of that, our work has been received with mixed reviews. And certainly some of the hardships have been, and I'll just be blunt here, I've had to explain or try to iterate numerous times things that that I think are basic human rights, you know, and trying to sort of break down or make an argument, make a case for um, people with immigrant or refugee status as being assets to our community. To me, that is a foregone conclusion. It is something obvious and plain and bumping up against people and having hard conversations, some of which are constructive and and some of which don't move the needle at all on either side, just around the value that diversity brings to our community. That's been tough, you know, and that's, um, I'm learning, still learning and still maturing on what does it look like to choose my battles wisely as it relates to advocacy efforts. Mm -hmm. So I hear you saying you spend a lot more time advocating for the students in the community than you thought you might at the beginning. 
Yeah, you know, and I think lots of us are guilty. Certainly, I'm guilty of, you know, I have I have friends from all walks of life, and I have family members with varying political stances, but the people that I talk to every day, you know, it, it kind of can turn into an echo chamber, and so I think that really skewed what I thought about our community as a whole and how they might feel about our immigrant and refugee members in the community. And so I've, I've spent a lot more time and energy than I would have imagined, most especially, frankly, since, since 2016. Um, under this administration, there have been so many changes and hurdles and hoops to jump through as it relates to equity and access and rights. So I've had to spend a lot more time in those conversations, again, just making a case for what I think should be a painfully obvious truth that we're all so valuable and we're better uh, when we're diverse. I really like how you said that. We're better when we're diverse. That's good. Now, you guys also do a community outreach to educate the community about what it is some of the immigrants and refugees have had to live through and experience on their journey here. One of those is a walk in their shoes. Is that every September? Do you want to kind of explain that and highlight that so if people are interested in joining that, they can know where to look? Yeah, sure. It's debatable whether it probably won't be this September. Uh, thanks, COVID. Yeah. But um, <laughs> yes, it usually happens once a year in the fall. And it's a simulation activity. And we, we've kind of modified it from UNHCR's version to, to make a meaningful experience for people to just for one afternoon kind of walk through a journey that highlights some of the, the barriers and some of the problems that our refugee community may face. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about refugee resettlement in general, and certainly it's not the case that any experience of a refugee or an immigrant is a monolith. We certainly can't narrow it down. You know, each family, each individual has had a nuanced, unique experience, of course. But we just want to try to let people experience even just a tiny bit of the, the stress and anxiety of what it looks like to be fleeing, literally as a matter of life and death, fleeing and leaving your home and trying to imagine, you know, building a life elsewhere. It's kind of a bizarre event to try to invite people to because it's not like, hey, come on out to the comedy club. We're doing a fundraiser and it's a great concert. It's this or that. It's like, hey, come push yourself and feel uncomfortable and maybe anxiety for a couple of hours. But then, you know, the hope is obviously that with that education also comes increased awareness that inevitably will breed more empathy, more understanding, um, more humility, and a listening heart to what our immigrant and refugee community members might have experienced. And that has had positive impact in the community? You've heard lots of positive responses? We have received nothing but positive responses, but I don't necessarily count that as a win. I think one of the things that we struggle with on events like that, we tend to attract you know, our allies, our supporters, you know, they're the ones who come out and are willing to walk that road literally and metaphorically with us. And what we'd love to do is figure out ways we can invite people who have an aversion to the presence of immigrants and refugees or are just questioning and unsure about 
what does that look like to have a, a multicultural community? Um, so I'd love to figure out ways we can bring more people to those kinds of events that maybe aren't already aligned to our mission and our cause. I never before considered what a huge challenge that must be to draw in people who are not of like mind. Have any of your views changed about immigrants and refugees since you've been serving this population? You know, as a college student and a young school teacher, I had traveled to Mexico on vacation and it was glorious because I just had cocktails on the beach and saw a very limited scope of Mexico, the very touristy part and, and the affluent part. I was way too old to be that naive about what conditions uh, south of the border are like for so many people. And I didn't really have an opinion on refugees. I, I grew up in a home where we were taught to be loving and be gracious and be inclusive. And I had had the opportunity to build friendships with people of different races and ethnicities, but I had never met a person with refugee status until I began teaching uh, English as a second language. And so my views changed significantly around that, around this issue of refugee resettlement, not from like, I was against it and now I'm for it, but like, I was apathetic due to my ignorance and learning about what that looks like, this particular group of people. And of course, they're defined by a number of different things make up their identities than just being refugees, of course, as is the case with, with each of us and the complexity of our identity. But this was really my first time to start interacting so meaningfully with these communities. And I would say I moved from someone who was just sort of lazily <laughs> uh, moving about my very privileged uh, easy life. And now I have, you know, severe insomnia and anxiety and uh, maybe not all positive things, but certainly a passion that uh, is unquenchable as it relates to equity and inclusivity and making sure that I am a great ally and a supporter and, and labor in service to the empowerment of my friends and neighbors in the refugee community. So I've come a long way and I still have, you know, so much more to learn for sure. That is beautiful. I love hearing that testament too. I, it's not that I ever was against. I just didn't know. I think a lot of people are in that boat. And thank you for sharing your vulnerability in that. You just mentioned that there's many sleepless nights. I know social justice work can get very stressful. So do you have anything that you do that helps relieve your stress or helps kind of take your mind off the burden that you carry daily for a little while? Yeah, my, my solution is, I think, equal parts prayer and cocktails. But I say <laughs> that and I'm, I'm mostly joking, but <laughs> there's some truth to it for sure. Uh, in the faith that I grew up in, we were, we were taught to be, you know, selfless. And so when I first heard the term self-care, I thought, no, like, I'm not supposed to be thinking of myself, you know, that's my natural tendency anyway. I should be using my energy to, to like think of myself last. And, and there's merit to being selfless. Of course there is. But, you know, there's also a lot of, 
a lot of good truth around put your oxygen mask on first before you try to help everybody else. And that's been a really hard lesson for me. I think that's the case for most people in human services. And, and like you said, anyone working towards social justice probably feels the exhaustion and the weight of that, especially in times like this. I do spend a lot of time in the great outdoors. I feel so fortunate to live in Colorado and I feel fortunate to have grown up in Arkansas, two states that gave me vast outdoor beauty and nature to bask in. So that is a great escape for me. I have lots of hobbies of hiking and fishing and I love any kind of water sports and I snow ski in the winter time and snowshoe in the winter time and I'm an avid reader so I, I definitely have escapes uh, that when I'm there I, I'm not thinking of work and I'm really fortunate to be able to travel um, so at least once a year I get out of the country and that's a great time to untether and just enjoy and experience another culture, not from the perspective of I'm here to somehow build relationships. It's just, oh, I'll try that new dish or I'll see this thing I've never seen before. And those are moments when I can disconnect from my, my work and that fill me up and make me jazzed about reentering the work upon return. That's good. Everybody needs to refill their tank. What myths would you like to speak to and debunk that people might think about English language learning schools? Like what things have you bumped up against that people have said, oh, well, it's just this, or you only do this. I'm sure there's been a few things that you've had to re-explain multiple times. Yeah, I think there's a an overwhelming erroneous narrative around English language learners that somehow their proficiency with the English language is somehow connected to their ability or their intellect. And anyone who's ever become multilingual knows it, you know, it takes time to learn a new language. And I think what's what's frustrating to me is that there's a lot of assumptions about our learners um, that if they're limited English proficiency, then they're only capable of doing certain jobs or that they, they're not working hard enough. And I just get really defensive, honestly, about the work ethic and the resiliency of our learners being questioned because they are an inspiring group of people. And in no way is their ability to speak English connected to their high cognitive functioning level, their vocational potential, their work ethic, their skill sets. And it feels silly to have to say that our English language learners are such an asset and bring so much to the table. But I, I do have to say those things. You know, I do have to remind people to see them for the, the great resource that they are and I think the other kind of myth around working with English language learners, and I'll say in full disclosure, this is something that I struggled with early on. I thought, I'm going to save the day. You know, I'm a go-getter. And I, I think there's an, an undercurrent, uh, especially among, you know, people like me who are, are white, middle class, and, and have been fortunate to be given so many opportunities. And we think, We'll just come in here and we'll just help them pull themselves up and we'll save the day. And it's such a, a narcissistic, horrific way to approach service delivery. 
And it, and it did not take long for me to realize, oh, I'm the beneficiary here. I am the one who is growing and learning and being inspired and being challenged by the students that I work with. And so I think, you know, really making sure that I can help people understand the symbiotic relationship that exists between our community members and our English language learners that, that in working together, everyone is winning. And I can't tell you how many of our own teachers and volunteers will say, I'm the winner here. Like, I love coming here because they help me. And so I, that's something that's really difficult to explain until someone has the opportunity to experience it for themselves. So true. Very, very well put. The whole great white savior myth is very damaging, I think, especially when working with marginalized people, sadly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, is there anything you would like to speak to about your organization, like how many customers you serve, success stories, how many students have gone through the program and have now become American citizens, anything spectacular and noteworthy and something we can all cheer for that you would like to share? Anyone can go to our website and they can look at the numbers as far as how many people we're serving and the various languages represented within our student body. And that's very um, quantitative data that is really interesting to a lot of people. And I would encourage anyone to, ch to really check that out. It's, I think it's impressive and that is not a reflection on me at all, but uh, more so a reflection on our amazing team and, you know, the awesome, wonderful folks who um, receive services here. But I think, you know, what I'd like to highlight, it's fresh on my mind because it just happened. Uh, I got a text from Mary, who's one of our teachers uh, last week that said, hey, one of our students, she passed her citizenship examination and became a United States citizen, but it was right when COVID was unfolding. And so her family wasn't able to go to the ceremony. And Mary said, so on Saturday, our class, uh, we're meeting at, you know, this gas station and we're decorating our cars and signs and we're wearing our masks, you know, and then we're going to do a parade through her neighborhood in front of her house. We're just going to honk our horns and, you know, make a couple of uh, laps. And then we have a, a small present for her to congratulate her. And I just got so teary eyed, you know, I just like, I'm so proud of that student for her accomplishments and what it took to become a United States citizen. And I'm overjoyed with delight and pride on her behalf, but I'm also so encouraged that the rest of her class people from different places with different experiences and different backgrounds are rallying around her to make her feel loved and supported and to celebrate her accomplishment. And the truth is like, as amazing as that is, that's not an anomaly. Like that's, that's a representation of who our clients are and who our teachers are and who our navigators are and, and the tone and the ethos with which we do business here. And I just thought, I am so lucky to get to do this work with these people. Wow, what a beautiful example of true community that we can all learn from. Where can the listeners connect with you? Well, yeah, absolutely. The easiest way to make contact with me is via email. I'm married to my email in unhealthy ways, I think, but the good news for a listener is I'll respond promptly. So uh, that email address is lisa, L-I-S-A, at I-R-C-N-O-C-O dot org. 
And if there's anyone who has questions, I'd love to meet for coffee or virtually meet, whatever it's, uh, however it's safe to do so. I'd love to connect. I'm especially would, would love to hear what questions or concerns you have. You know, one valuable lesson I've learned in this job is that I need to listen, listen to the, the people that are um, part of this organization and listen to the community. And so I'm happy to hear questions and concerns or ideas. Glad to sit down with you. What I ultimately want is, you know, I want everyone in Weld County to be absolutely pumped and to feel so fortunate to get to live in a community with so many people who have refugee and immigrant status. And and whatever I can do to further that work, happy to do it. Thank you so much. Okay. I have three closing questions and then you're off the hot seat. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Everybody gets asked these questions. What is your single best tip to make the world a better place? I like you, Corey, love quotations. Someone else always said it better and I'd cling to their, I think it was uh, Teddy Roosevelt who said, do what you can with what you have, where you are. And I think that is my best advice for making the world a better place. You know, don't let perfection get in the way of progress and don't be afraid of messes and don't think that you have to move to a third world, third world country country to make a difference. I mean, do so if you feel inspired, but there is work wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, there is work to be done. There are people in need of love and kindness. There are nonprofits in need of volunteers. There are vacancies in elected positions that you need to be running for, you know, do what you can with what you have, where you are. It won't be for nothing. Ooh, so good. I absolutely love the practical advice of that tip, Lisa. That's a great one. Okay, second question. What are you most thankful for? I live a really blessed life. You know, there's a lot for me to be thankful for. I have it easy for the most part, but I will say my family, you know, far and away, my family is what I'm most thankful for. The way, you know, my childhood, the way that my parents raised me, what they instilled in me, what they continue to instill in me and teach me, the ways that I still feel the full weight of the love and support of my family. I have a a partner that I'll marry sometime in 2021, if it's, you know, safe together, uh, who is such a great balance, who who shares my passion for social justice, Um, and who is a hard worker. He's a teacher and he labors to the nth degree to make the world better, but he also makes jokes and is very silly. And he offsets the weightiness that I, I take to bed every night. And so I, yeah, my family far and away for sure. Excellent. I have a feeling that's going to be the most prominent answer. (laughs) (laughs) Lastly, what is your favorite quote besides the Teddy Roosevelt quote you just gave me? Yeah, I should say that this changes for me very often. Uh, I've been in turmoil of late, like like many, over the the police brutality and the racial injustices, and I've been trying to be involved in meaningful ways in the Black Lives Matter movement and to support my Black friends. And I keep coming back to this quote by Martin Luther King that said, "Injustice anywhere." is a threat to justice everywhere. And I just keep thinking it like day and night that 
this business of injustice, this fight for equity, the battle belongs to all of us. Like if you value justice, if you value humanity, then you should necessarily be aligning yourself to Black Lives Movement because injustice anywhere is a a threat to justice everywhere. Mm, Yes, we would all do well to think on that one some more, wouldn't we? Thank you so much for your time, Lisa. I really, really appreciate it. I hope this helps and makes an impact um, with people and they learn and listen and appreciate you as much as I do. I think the thing I've learned the most from my visit with Lisa today is that it takes a person of strong mental fortitude to live under the exacting demands of executive leadership in a nonprofit. I never before realized the load she was carrying mentally, emotionally, psychologically, as well as the physical exhaustion and immense sense of responsibility for the welfare of her clients that comes with the job. But she seems to love it so much. That is also the fuel that energizes her and keeps her going. Life is like that, isn't it? Paradoxical in nature, like two sides of the same coin. I think the poet Mary Oliver describes Lisa's life and passion best. She says simply, my work is loving the world. Keep up the good work, Lisa, and everyone at the IRC. We're cheering for you. To learn more about Lisa and her wonderful team at the Immigrant and Refugee Center of Northern Colorado, please check out their website at ircnoco.org. Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road.